Aging on a Microscopic Scale. Up next on The Scope. Examining the latest research and telling you about the latest breakthroughs. The Science and Research Show is on The Scope. I'm talking with Dr. Adam Hughes, Assistant Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Utah. Dr. Hughes, when I think of aging, I think about getting wrinkles, going gray, slowing down. But you think of aging at a different scale. How do you think about aging? We think about aging, I'd say, more at a organismal level or even more specific than that at a cell biology level. Sort of looking not how aging affects the whole organism, but how it affects specific structures within our cells, within different tissues. A lot of your research focuses on one component of the cell, um, an organelle uh, called the mitochondria. Um, first of all, can you orient us to the mi- mitochondria? What does it do? Sure. Mitochondria are, you know, they're known as the powerhouse of the cell. Sort of historically, they're drawn as the, you know, sort of kidney, be- kidney bean shaped structures you see in all the textbooks. But mitochondria do a lot of different things in metabolism. Uh, they're a double membrane structure that, you know, they produce lipids. Um, they're involved in oxidative phosphorylation. They basically make energy for cell and also participate in a large number of metabolic reactions. Studying the mitochondria is actually a whole field in, in and of itself. What's some of the evidence that mitochondria is involved in aging? The mitochondria has drawn a lot of attention, not only for its role in um, sort of changes in mitochondrial function affecting how long an or- organism lives, but it's also become very clear that as mitochondria become faulty with age, which happens for a number of different reasons in a number of contexts, uh, this has also been linked to driving sort of the development of a large number of um, age-associated disorders as well. Um, and as it turns out, there's quite an elaborate system for um, getting rid of or repairing mitochondria that does not function well. You've just published some research about this in the journal eLife. Using so, so I haven't explained much of what we've been doing. We've been using yeast as a model system to understand the aging process. So it's pretty cool that it, um, it's a single-celled eukaryote um, that people that one of the simplest, the simplest one, and a lot of labs have been using it for a very long time to understand sort of lifespan regulation type processes. And so our lab actually uses this organism, and it does in fact age. Um, a yeast cell, we, we measure aging by the number of times a cell can divide before it dies. And that happens about 30 times before a cell dies. And so in these old cells, this sort of started several years ago when I was a postdoc at the Hutch on uh, Dan Gottschling's lab, we found that in old cells, there was damaged or dysfunctional mitochondria. Um, and so we decided to use this system to try to see what we can learn about how cells handle this. How do they respond? What can they do? And we went into it at the time, um, wondering if we could sort of mammal- model pathways that were already known in mammals, one of the most prominent being these sort of autophagy-dependent um, or self-eating pathways um, that are, that had already been fairly well characterized. And so when we went into this, we sort of set out to see, you know, in an old cell, do we see pieces of mitochondria? And we're visualizing all this on the microscope being ripped off and degraded um, after they're damaged. Mm-hmm. And we saw um, that there was, in fact, you know, this going on in old yeast cells. And so we, we sort of initially thought it was similar to what had been observed already, um, mm-hmm. And, and that's how we sort of got into it. We didn't go into it looking for new pathways, um, but eventually it's sort of as we got more into the details of what this is going on, we realized this is actually a totally new type of quality control that we discovered uh, that was different than anything else that had been described before. So what is it? What, what did you find? And how is it different from what was there, what you knew before? In general, in this field, um, it was always thought that as a mitochondria became damaged, that these systems aren't very smart for sort of lack of a better word, that they would 
go to a damaged mitochondria and just degrade the entire thing, mm-hmm. um, which is a, seems a bit wasteful. Um, and so when we came into this, we sort of thought the same thing, and we were using um, a protein on the mitochondria. We were monitoring it by microscopy, and we could see that it was being eaten. Um, but what we sort of did that went beyond these original studies and other systems was, you know, there's about a thousand different proteins in the mitochondria. And we just started looking at other ones too. So most of the studies in mammalian cells had only looked at one or two and sort of made conclusions. And so we went on and looked at all mitochondrial proteins um, to see how they were all being degraded. And what we discovered based on this, and this is sort of the big um, crux of this study, is that um, the pathway we've uncovered now is, is the concept and idea that mitochondria actually under these situations when they're damaged, don't just get totally degraded um, as a whole. They can actually be broken down piece by piece. And what I mean by that is certain proteins can be basically selectively sorted out and removed from the mitochondria and degraded, and the rest of it can be left intact. Do you have any ideas yet of whether this pathway relates to aging or, or how it relates to aging? We got into it looking at aging, but we think it's actually going to have many applications in other systems, um, especially sort of metabolic-related uh, disorders. We've been working from it from a standpoint of sort of seeing this structure, and, you know, it forms. It's sort of very descriptive. It forms, it, you know, gets released, it gets degraded, and certain proteins go into it and certain ones don't. Um, but understanding what the importance of it is and why it happens uh, has been a, a much more difficult question. And we are starting to get at that. Um, we didn't get onto a, in, into a lot of it in this currently published paper, but um, some of our sort of current experiments are directed in the range of one thing that, w- that we did include here. And one big clue to us um, is the identity of the proteins that are actually degraded by the system. So, again, the mitochondria has about a 1,000 proteins in yeast. Um, and when we looked at the proteins that are degraded by the system that we discovered it's only about 10% of those proteins. And it turns out it's very selective for one particular group, um, which is a, a group of protein called sort of the, the mitochondrial nutrient carrier protein. So the role of this group of proteins is about 30 of them. Um, and they in the mitochondria, they basically facilitate the transport of all nutrients into and out of the mitochondria. So we're sort of working from the fact that, you know, these are the main targets of this pathway. And we think that's sort of giving us a big clue as to, you know, what might be its role. And so clearly they're metabolite transporters. They're very heavily involved in all aspects of metabolism. And so we, we're sort of testing the idea now and hypothesis that um, this pathway may be very important for actually protecting mitochondria um, in, in, sort of in times of changes in cellular metabolic state. It's also kind of amazing to me that, especially in something as simple as a yeast, that there's still entire processes that we're still discovering. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's definitely a really cool point. I think sometimes yeast gets, th- this day and age, will get a bad rap, you know, and there's you hear all kinds of things that, you know, yeast research has done, and, you know, we, we can do things in yeast that we used to be able to do only in yeast, now we can do them in, in humans and other organisms. Um, but what's sort of a big arena right now, I'd say, in the yeast field is is cell biology. And it's been very limiting for a long time, um, sort of the the ability to look at, you know, all different proteins and all different things within the cell. And and what's really cool in, in the yeast field is that um, many, many years ago now, probably 10 years ago, um, uh, a lab developed a collection of all yeast proteins tagged with a fluorescent protein GFP. So it's about 6,000 proteins in yeast. And so we have strains that contain every single one of them. And so there's a number of labs across the country, including ours, that are essentially using this collection to look at you know, how the entire proteome changes, not in terms of levels, but in terms of sort of localization within cells. And 
and people are it's, are sort of discovering a lot of new things that no one had ever noticed um, simply because we have the tools to do it now and and this is what's really nice in yeast is, and we still don't have the ability to do this in mammalian systems yet so I think the future will sort of get there and we'll be able to start looking at these but there's a lot of new I'd say cellular structures cellular compartments that form under very particular conditions that people just hadn't seen before interesting informative and all in the name of better health This is the Scope Health Sciences Radio.